0: Hebrews chapter 12 and we're looking at verses 3 through verse 13 this morning and you can find that on page 1008 if you're using the church bible before we look at God's word let's pray and let's ask his blessing on the preaching of what is a a pretty difficult passage that we're going to have to really take our time with this morning looking at carefully let's go to him in prayer this morning Father, we thank you for every word that you have breathed out. We thank you for the sweet words, and we thank you for the difficult words. We thank you for the encouragements, and we thank you for the chastisements and the the correction and the discipline and the rebukes that we need so desperately. And so, Father, we pray that you would speak to the hearts of your people this morning. We pray that the scriptures would cut to every heart in this room, young and old. We pray that Christ would be exalted, that he would be held up and that we would be drawn to him and that we would see your purposes in our life and the way that you deal with us. And Father, we pray that what we do this morning would have implications into eternity for us. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be present with us. We pray that you would do what only you can do as the prophet, priest, and king of your church. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 3, the writer picking up on... What he said there, the first several verses about Jesus enduring the cross, despising the shame, and having sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, now says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and chastens every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, there is a quote floating around the internet. I tried to find out who came up with it. It shows up on Twitter feeds periodically over the last several months, and it says something like this. It says, "Um, when I was young, I used to think that all my friends' parents were cool parents. Now I just know they were bad parents. I used to think all my friends' parents were cool parents. Now I just know they were bad parents. And it's interesting because I had a similar experience. I used to wonder when I was a boy why all my friends got to do seemingly whatever they wanted to do. Why there didn't seem to be any discipline or instruction for them, why they got to stay up as late as they wanted to, why they got to go wherever they wanted to. And I remember as a boy thinking, I wish I had cool parents like them. And now I know that their parents were just bad parents and that God had given me good parents. And I'm sorry if you don't like distinguishing, if you don't like that. And How can you say they were bad parents? I will say that emphatically. The Bible says that. The passage in front of us says that human fathers are there to discipline and instruct their children and to nurture them, and I was blessed to have a dad who both taught me about biblical discipline and who modeled that in our home, and I hated it as a child. I I remember how it made me feel inside. I was an unbeliever. I didn't like it. That increased my dislike for all of his nurture and discipline in the home, and yet now that I'm a dad... And now that I know what I know, and now that I have some desire to grow in Christ's likeness, I am grateful for both the discipline of my father and what lay behind that, which really was the discipline of the Lord. Now, it's a very difficult subject. It's a subject that doesn't get talked about a lot. It's a subject that's not treated in a lot of uh, Christian writing. You don't find a lot of books about the discipline of the Lord. And when you do, there's, there's different ways that men try to explain what it is. There are ways that men try to say, well, it's not talking about uh, physical affliction. It's not talking about discipline in the, in the corporal, uh, in the punishment sense of, of, of discipline. It's talking largely about how God disciplines us through the scriptures, and he disciplines us in the visible church, and he disciplines us through the ways that he ministers to us with his word and his sacraments and all the things he's appointed. But then we come to a passage like this, and we come to a passage that is very difficult. We come to a passage in which the writer of Hebrews has been exhorting his dull hearers who once had been fervent in spirit, who once had joyfully plundered, had accepted the plundering of their goods, a people who at one time had embraced reproach for the name of Christ and now had become tired of embracing it and needed to persevere and were in danger of turning away from Christ so that they didn't have to endure any worse suffering and that worse suffering would be martyrdom which they had not yet experienced and the writer of Hebrews has in the first 10 chapters of this book in order to encourage them he has told them Jesus is better than everyone in the Old Testament Jesus is better than anything that you can imagine and when we come to chapter 11 he's given us that whole history of the Old Testament saints who have trusted in him who have put their faith in him who have looked past this world Into glory and have looked forward to the coming Redeemer and endured hardship and trials and difficulties. And now the writer is saying, You too can do that, but before he says that, he says there is one person, as we saw last week, who did it preeminently, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And as the writer exhorts them to consider Jesus, there is this transition. And notice in verse 3 that he's told us that we look to Jesus by faith. He is the object of our faith. He is the source of our faith. He is the author of our faith. He is the goal of our faith. And now the writer tells us he is the example of our faith. And notice what he says in verse 3. He says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you do not grow weary or discouraged in your souls. Now, I think it's important for us to say that the Bible, while it does set out Jesus as an example, it sets him out as exemplar, it always sets him out first and foremost as the one who is the redeemer. It always sets him out as the savior first and then as example. The writers never moved to Jesus as example, as the source of your Christianity. They never say, he came, he was man, he did it, you can do it too, that's it, that's Christianity. He always says, you can't do it, you're dead in sins and trespasses, you can only be made alive through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You were without hope, without God, weak, sinful, helpless, ungodly, under the wrath of God, under the judgment of God, and heading for damnation, and Jesus interposed his precious blood. And that's the preeminent message of the Bible. But then the writers of Scripture don't leave it there. They always take you on. And they say not only is Jesus the Savior, Jesus is the example. And the question is, the example of what? The example of someone who did good? The example of someone who loved people? The the example of someone who was kind and compassionate? The example of someone who sought to bless other people? Yes, yes, yes to all those things. But the writer of Hebrews says here, he was the example of one who knew how to suffer at the hands of sinners and under the hand of his Father. And so the writer says there first that we are to consider the example of Jesus Christ in suffering. Notice, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint hearted in your struggle against sin. And notice that the writer tells us that not only did he he endure hostility from sinners, not only was Jesus made a reproach, and not only was his life a life of receiving the mocking and the scorn and the social rejection of sinners that he came into the world to save, not only was he rejected by his own disciples, not only did everyone forsake him and flee, but he resisted sin In striving against the evil one and in going to the cross to atone for our sins, he resisted sin, striving against it unto bloodshed. The writer is going to tell us that when we look at the cross, we are to think, what did it take? What did it take for the Lord Jesus not to sin? Now, that might be a question you're uncomfortable with. You might say, well, he's the eternal son of God. He can't sin. Well, yes, in the divine nature, that's true. In the human nature, certainly there was the possibility as a man. Now I know there was no possibility. I get that. I get that Jesus could not have sinned because he came as the Savior. I get that his destiny was to save us. I get that as God, he would not allow himself to sin in the flesh. And yet he was a man just like you. He was, he was if I can say this carefully, a descendant of Adam Though he had no human father, he had a will and emotions and a mind just like you. He felt, he felt it when he was reproached. I don't like social reproach. I don't. I imagine you don't like social reproach. I, I imagine Jesus didn't like to be reproached socially. He felt that. He was not... He was not some kind of stoical robot. He was a man. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus. He felt compassion. He was moved with compassion. And the question is, how did such a man endure to the point of a sinless life? And the writer would have us know he endured all the way to the point of the cross And he resisted sin. Yes, sin from the temptation of the evil one. Sin from fellow countrymen. Sin, perhaps even the temptations of sinful women washing his feet. Yes, Jesus felt temptations. He felt temptations. And the writer says that the way that he resisted was that he had to resist all the way to the point of shedding his blood. And that Jesus Christ resisted sin All the way to the point of shedding his blood. And so notice what he says to us in verse 4. You have not yet resisted. I know some of you fairly well now. And you know me fairly well enough to say I know that you have not resisted sin to the point of shedding your blood. And I know I don't have to know everybody to be able to say that every sinner has not resisted sin To the point of shedding their blood and being martyred for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so the writer says, consider him. When you are faced with difficult situations, when you are being tempted, the way to endure those temptations is to remember that Jesus went through in every way. Remember, it's in this book. It's in this book that he says earlier, he was tempted in all ways, even as we are yet without sin. And he's able to sympathize with us. When we're being tempted, he knows what it was to be tempted. He knows what it was to endure temptation all the way to the point of bloodshed. And so how will you endure temptation to the point of bloodshed? How will you endure, I think here, the temptation of turning away from him? Isn't that interesting how intimately bound up it is? The sin that the writer to the Hebrews is calling them to resist is the sin of turning away from Christ. And what he says is, consider christ and how he endured hostility from sinners to the point of bloodshed and that in considering him and remembering that he endured it that will be a massive aid to you in enduring it now maybe you maybe this is not even there's no category for you mentally or in your heart for this maybe maybe this is just words just zooming past your ears um I would encourage you to think about, first and foremost, that the Christian life is a life of difficulty and trial. That the Bible never says the Christian life is going to be easy. Never says, come to Jesus, and you'll just float your way to heaven. Never says that. Never says, come to Jesus, and your marriage is going to be perfect, and your kids are going to turn out perfect, and... and You're going to have a great bank account, and everything's going to be great. In fact, the Bible says it's going to be very difficult. The apostle said, through many trials, we must enter the kingdom. Through much tribulation, we must enter the kingdom. And so the writer's saying, you have need to consider the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice what he says in verse Mm 5. Secondly, he reminds them of the fatherly discipline that God brings to help. Notice there, he says, have you forgotten? Or... I think a better translation is, and you have forgotten. They had forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. Now, notice what he's going to do in verse 5 and 6 of this, and he'll help you to look at that. He's going to quote Proverbs 3, 10 and 11, and he's going to look back into the Proverbs, and he's going to see there Solomon reflecting on David's instruction to him, and David telling Solomon, and then Solomon telling his son, my son, do not despise the discipline or the chastening or the instruction of your father. And don't be discouraged when you're rebuked by him for whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son that he receives. Now notice the the writer would have us understand there's a connection here, and it's a hard connection because the context is persecution. Context that we've been looking at for Twelve chapters is persecution for the name of Christ. And now the writer's going to say, sometimes, it seems, the writer's going to say, sometimes God uses that persecution in order to sanctify you and to further conform you into the image of Jesus now is that right? Could that be right? how could how could a good and loving God use something like persecution for the name of his Son Jesus Christ to also be chastisement and discipline for sin? I think very clearly he's teaching that at least here for the Hebrews in this particular situation that's the case and that he loved them and he cared about them. I want to read to you a quote. Um, A quote from William Still on this passage. He says, right away, there is this new idea of the discipline of the Lord. Not just any discipline, but the discipline of the Lord. Now, of course, that can come through persecution, as it had done the Hebrews to whom he's writing. Or it can come through the strictures of God's word being leveled at us and taken seriously. If you are taking this word seriously, then that is going to involve you in discipline, maybe chastening. Either way, when it comes through others, the wickedness of others, through persecution or trial or through God's holy word, challenging us to die to all that is evil. Either way, it is to be regarded as the discipline of the Lord, who often uses our enemy as the rod of chastisement for his sinful children. Now, maybe this is all new to you and maybe you're saying, wow, that sounds very harsh. How would a loving father use the rod of his enemies on his children? And yet, the Bible is saying, and it's saying very clearly, that God is a father who loves his children in the way a father should love his children. You know, many of us have a hard time with understanding the Bible's presentation as God, as our father, because maybe we didn't have good fathers. And the only father that you know is the father who you grew up with in the house at the dinner table. That's the only father you knew. And that's the only father that you saw day in and day out. And, and he was a sinful father. Jesus says that. Jesus says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, even the best fathers are evil. And the best fathers make mistakes. And the best fathers discipline too harshly. And the best fathers forget to discipline. And the best fathers are short with their children. And the best fathers are overbearing with their children. And so maybe you've had a father who wasn't the best father. And so you have to work harder to get into the scriptures and say, what is God the Father like? And what the writer tells us is he is so committed to bringing you to glory that he will employ everything that he knows that you need to bring you there. And that the discipline he brings, whether it's through the scriptures, whether it's through the discipline in the church, whether it's through admonitions from other Christians, whether it's through him piercing your own conscience, because of the guilt of your sin and him sending conviction by spirit, or whether it's through persecution, trials, difficulties, afflictions, sicknesses, whatever, he knows exactly what his children need. And it's the discipline of the Lord. It's not just any discipline. It's the discipline of the Lord. R.C. Sproul tells a story about how he played football when he was young, and his coach was a huge... um, a six-and-a-half-foot man who had huge hands, and he said, every time I wasn't in position correctly, he would put his hands on my shoulders, and it would hurt. He would squeeze to get me in position properly and to show me to show me where I needed to be. And Sproul goes on to tell the story of how when he went off to seminary, he had an issue in his life, and God was dealing severely with him, and he went to John Gerstner, his mentor, and he told him, and Gerstner said, Oh, my son, he says, the hand of the Lord must be heavy upon you right now. And Sproul says, it reminded him of his football coach, who when he was putting him in the right place and he was resetting him and repositioning him, it was heavy upon him. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that you have a father in heaven that though that might feel heavy upon you at times, he is committed to putting you in the right place in helping you along, in in conforming you to the image of Christ. And so notice what the writer says, that the danger, there's a danger. Notice in his quote from Proverbs 3, do not, and literally I don't like the ESV here, it's literally do not despise the discipline of the Lord. There's a temptation. When I was a boy, I despised the discipline of my father. I despised it. You didn't know me. I'm telling you, in my heart, I despised the discipline of my father. And when I was converted at 24, I remember picking up the phone and saying, Thank you for disciplining me. There's a danger, it's not enjoyable. Notice what the writer says. He says, um, Notice in verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful. It seems painful. It's hard, it's discipline- dis- difficult, it's not fun. It's not enjoyable. It's not the happy-go-lucky emotional high that so many people are looking for. It's the heavy hand of God upon his people, and it's not fun. And yet, notice what the writer says. Do not despise it. Do not grow weary. Do not, do not get tired when you're being reproved by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. All discipline seems painful, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of Of righteousness to those who have been trained by it what is God doing what is God doing through disciplining his people God is shaping and molding you more and more into the image of Christ you know if you if you never went through anything hard in life you may be a kind person you may be a nice person you will not be a very helpful person to other people who are suffering I know that much That the people I've seen who are able to help others most are those who have been through things themselves. Um, As I've said in the past, the Puritans often said, when God wants to make a man, he breaks a man. God wants to make a man, he breaks a man. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. And what he's saying is that God cares more about your holiness than about your joy or your peace or anything else that you might want in life. I have to read this other quote to you from Sinclair Ferguson. It was so good and so helpful. Um, Ferguson is talking about um, talking about all of the, um, the ways that people look at this and the ways that they consider this. And what he says is that God cares about your holiness. We don't care about our holiness. He cares about our holiness. We don't care about it as we ought to. And, and now this is going to sound hard, but just listen. He doesn't care if you have money. He doesn't care if you have a great job. He doesn't care if you have a big house. What he cares about is you being holy and being conformed to the image of his son. And Ferguson says, how do I know? How do I know that he doesn't care about you having those things? Because he didn't care about his eternal son having those things. Jesus didn't have any of those things. He didn't care about his eternal son having any of those things. And Jesus cared about the holiness that his father cared about. And Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame to bring many sons to glory. And because he did that, and because your glory is guaranteed in the death of Jesus, God the father now employs all of the loving discipline that he can employ to bring you to glory and to keep you on the narrow path and to make you useful to others and to turn you into somebody that you would never, ever, ever be able to turn yourself into. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is telling us. Now notice that he's telling us that behind that, behind that discipline, behind all of God's desires for us, is the love of God. Notice verse 6, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. What comes before the discipline, what comes before the hardship and the trial and the heavy hand, is the love of God. John Owen, the Puritan, made a great, a great deal about this. That before the discipline is the love and that the discipline is a mark that God loves you. I don't know if you've ever, ever looked at it this way and I want you to look at it this way from this day through the rest of your life. Whenever there's sin in your life and you know that God has sent some sort of chastisement into your life, you ought to be able to say, that is a mark of my Father's love for me. And I will receive it as such. God loves me. God wants me to be holy. I will embrace that discipline. And I know that whatever God is doing is for my good. The writer would have you know that. Notice verse 6. Why not despise it? Why not grow weary under it? Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Now, the writer will go on to say that there are fathers, human fathers, who discipline their children. In case you don't like this, in case you're... In case you're having a hard time with this and you're a dad, especially if you're a dad, you know that probably every dad in this room has disciplined their kids. To some degree or another, we've all disciplined our children. And so the writer would say, look, we've all had fathers. We all had some sense of discipline from them. And then he'll say, every child who is not disciplined is illegitimate. Does not belong in that house does not belong to that parent and that means when God lets lets people live under cool parents and not be disciplined and just do what they want that's a mark that those parents actually don't love those children I'll say that I don't care if you're comfortable with that I'll say that that's a mark that those parents do not love those children Because a parent who loves their children is a parent who disciplines their children. And God the Father loves his people so much that he will bring hardship and trial into their lives. Let me give you an example. Um, Some of the greatest saints have known the greatest discipline. It's interesting when you look in church history. The greatest saints, the ones that God really used, the ones that are remembered for all of church history are the ones who suffered the most hardship and trial. Lost wives, lost children were thrown in prison. One I thought of as, as I was preparing this was John Bunyan, who interestingly had reflected at some point that he had heard that there were trees in a, for, a far off land that never bore fruit because it was never winter there. He said he had heard that there there was a place where there were fruit trees in a far-off land that never bore fruit because it was never winter there. And Bunyan knew what it was to go through the winter of God's chastening hand in his life. Bunyan was torn from his home and from his congregation. He was preaching John 9, uh, do you believe that I am the son of God? And he was hauled off to prison for 12 years. And as he reflected on... The difficulties of that, Bunyan talked about the pain he felt when he thought about being ripped away, especially from his wife and his blind daughter. Bunyan said, I found myself a man compassed with infirmities. The parting with my wife and poor children has often been to me in this place, in prison, as the pulling the flesh from my bones. And that not only because I am somewhat too fond of those great mercies, but also because I should have often brought to my mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family was to meet with should I be taken from them, especially my poor blind child. As he writes that, no sooner does he write that, the Bunyan says, as he's in prison, this is the benefit that he received from what was happening to him. I never knew what it was for God to stand by me at all turns. At every offer of Satan to afflict me, I have found him since I came in here. For look how fears have pressed themselves, so have supports and encouragements. As I have stared, even as it were nothing else but my shadow, yet God, as being very tender of me, has not suffered me to be molested, but would, with one scripture or another, strengthen me against all. Inasmuch that I have often said, were it lawful, I could pray for greater trouble for the greater comfort's sake. Um, Bunyan will go on to say that when he was in prison... He never knew the comfort of certain scriptures that he knew when he was in prison. Now, most of us know people who, when hardship hits, they complain, they grumble, they sigh. They say, why me? Why is this happening to me? Why am I going through this? Why can't it be easier? And you know, there is one simple answer to that question. It's because God loves you. That's the simple answer to that question. Why can't it be easier? Because God loves you. God is committed to your holiness. God would have you flee from everything sinful in your life. God would have you be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. I want to ask you today, um, what role you see discipline playing in your life as a professing Christian? Um, Where are you in your walk with the Lord? How are you being disciplined under the ministry of his word in the church? This writer would say one of the disciplines of God is don't forsake the assembling together of yourselves, as is the matter of some. But that's that's a start in us embracing the discipline of God is gathering together with his people, being under the ministry of his word. When hardships and trials come, do you stop and ask the question, am I being chastened for things in my life that I know are sinful and where God needs to purge me? Now, I want to raise one warning here. At the end, I want to raise one warning. I don't get to come to you and interpret God's providence for your life. I can tell you if you're forsaking the assembly. I can do that. I don't get to interpret, though, why you're maybe going through sickness or hardship or other trials. Lest I fall into Job's friend syndrome. So this is a razor's edge. But I think it's incumbent on every one of us in this room when we go through trials and difficulties to say, where is God wanting to purge me? Where is my loving Heavenly Father wanting to make me more like Jesus Christ? I try to do that. I do it imperfectly. I will say this, that there is almost no trial or difficulty that God brings into my life that I don't somehow reflect on and I am in some way able to say I know that the Lord wants me to repent of this and this and this and this in my life and whether I'm interpreting that properly or not I think that that is the responsibility of every Christian as God calls us to keep near to the Lord Jesus Christ and at the end of the day at the end of the day everybody who is trained By the discipline of the Lord, everyone who receives it and says, it's painful, I don't like it, but it's good for me. Who says with David, it is good for me to be afflicted that I learn to keep your commandments. It's good for me to be afflicted. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. It was good for me to be afflicted. Everyone who learns that, that's a person who is fleeing constantly into the arms of Jesus Christ. That is a person who will make it to glory That is a person who is going to finish the race. That is a person who will not turn away from Jesus. And everyone that despises it, and everybody who disdains it, and everybody who grows weary of it, every one of them is a person who will turn away from Jesus Christ in their profession of faith. It is, if I can say this as we close, the loving discipline of God is one of the greatest graces that he gives his people. It's one of the greatest graces that we could ever get because he is guiding you to glory through it. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we know that we have only scratched the surface of this difficult subject, and we, Lord, know that we have not known much affliction and much chastisement in our own lives, and so we pray, Father, that you would that you would quicken us and that you would make us to be a people who, apart from discipline, would love to pursue holiness. We pray, Father, that you would be conforming us to the image of Christ, that you would be using every trial and difficulty, every affliction and every every, um, every means that you have given your church that we might be prepared for glory. We pray, Father, that you would fix our eyes on Jesus, that you would help us to consider him, that we would know that there is nothing that we're called to go through that he has not gone through. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would take the truth of the scripture and that you would press it deep into our minds and hearts. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.